All right, and we're back with another Favorite Things, and it has been a week. It has been. I am exhausted and angry and excited and (laughs) happy, (laughs) and I'm feeling absolutely everything and just feel like a black hole of (laughs) nothing right now. I just, I've got next to nothing left right now. Um, it's, It's been a week. Yeah. Between uh, COVID exposures at work and uh, getting the PlayStation Five yes. and all all sorts of Tomorrow's fun stuff. Your birthday. Tomorrow's my birthday. It's just all sorts of things going on. So let's stick to the fun stuff. Um, and there's enough reality out there for all of you. If you're not experiencing reality. Uh, I got to be honest, guys, you can't experience the highs until you experience the lows. Make sure you're experiencing some reality to go along with fantasy. Uh, So diving back into fantasy. (laughs) uh, Yesterday, I was able to unbox my PlayStation 5 and Uh, real excited. Yeah. And then promptly uh, watched my wife play about an hour to an hour and a half of (laughs) Astro's Playroom. And that was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. I didn't didn't want to stop. You actually had to say, hey, I think it's time to stop. Yep. So that's, uh, yeah, I didn't expect something like that to happen. Yep. No, (laughs) you... You're not really a 3D gamer. Uh, you'll play the 2D Mario's. You'll play Mario Kart. Mario Kart's but, about my 3D limit, and so. But when we popped this game in, I said, "Hey, just go," and you went with it. And it's it's one of these pack-in games that it's it's really showing you how the console works. It's really showing you how the controller works, getting you familiar with how things play and feel. Um, but in its own right, it's a pretty good game. It's it a pretty is. good platformer. Yeah, I yeah I had a lot of fun with the little um, Wally type guy. Yes. And uh, yeah, all the different things that remote control does. I think my least favorite parts of that game was when it turns into a little ball and you have to use your finger on it. The tracking pad. Yeah, just because that was awkward for me. Oh, I understand. But, uh, but that only lasts a minute or so before you get to the next level and. So, but it was a lot of fun. I mean, that part was still fun. I'm not saying it wasn't. That was just probably my least favorite part of it. But yeah. It was a lot of fun. But think about when it comes to video games, these pack-in games are what teach you video game literacy. Whereas yeah. in in elementary school, your teachers pull out the little tracing writing tablets to teach you how to write letters and, and words. Video games have to have some sort of equivalent, some sort of very low stakes we're going to teach you how to play video games yeah and for the nintendo it was super mario brothers um for the nintendo wii it was wii sports for uh for modern games any number of games come to mind but for this particular one it's astrobot uh astro's playroom pardon me yeah and it is a lot of fun. It's I think the the total game time, if you stretch everything out, is about four hours, uh, from what I've read. But it teaches you everything you need to know about how to play 3D games. Yeah. And I I loved watching you play. I've never <laughs> seen you that focused on a video game. And it and it, the fact that I was it wasn't hard. Like I was getting even the hardish parts for me as I was figuring it out. 
they weren't hard. They're easy for me to figure out. And I wasn't left confused. Like, you know, there are a couple of times I'd hit the wrong button here and there. Um, it was a learning curve, but like other games that you have me put me on, I'm like, even when I do something right, I had no idea how I did it. Yes. And it just would leave me frustrated because it's like, okay, repeat what you just did. And I'm like, I don't know what I did. Yes. So, um, yeah, the, the other ones, they would just leave me frustrated and stuff. Where this one, it was just a lot of fun and I was having fun because as I would do something and I kept doing it correctly, you know, I might die once, but then I figured it out really quick and be able to move on. Yes. And, uh, yeah, yeah, it was a, it was a lot of fun. And so I look forward to playing it a little bit more. Yeah. So I, uh, I've gotten to play that. I've gotten to play some backwards compatible games from the PlayStation 4. I've gotten to play uh, some uh, of the newer games like the new Miles Morales Spider-Man. Happy birthday. Uh, uh, yes, <laughs> thank you. Um, and really getting a feel for what the ins and outs of the system are. And I'm really enjoying it. It's a lot of fun. It's, um, it's not a huge leap as far as uh, graphics, although it is prettier. Um, yeah. A lot of the things that this is doing differently are more convenience and yeah. accessibility. Things like um, the the games load ridiculously quickly, <laughs> um, and it's. It's a lot of fun. I'm sure at some point we'll have a full-on PlayStation 5 episode to, to deep dive into it. But short impressions, absolutely loving it right now. Yeah. Well worth the investment. I'm, I'm excited to play more. Yeah. Uh, but now we will get into our big topic of the show, uh, Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. And I have to be honest, uh, this is hands down my least favorite Harry Potter movie. I can see why. Um, so it's not a bad movie. I, no. I want to right out the gate say that. I want to be clear about my feelings about this. It is not a bad movie. It is not a bad Harry Potter movie. This is just, there is so much going on in so many different directions that on several occasions, I felt like I lost the plot. Uh, and yeah. I'm, I'm kind of curious how much I'll actually attempt to recap today, uh, <laughs> because I could probably tell you the beginning, middle, and end of this movie, but I don't know that I could, I could string together the plot threads that connect them. Yeah. Uh, so we'll get into that here in a bit. But overall, I enjoyed this one. It's, yeah. it's the one that I look forward to parts of it, but not the whole. Yeah. I honestly, when, as we started watching it, cause I'm like, I know I've seen all the Harry Potter movies. Mm -hmm. I remembered nothing about this one as we were watching it. I was like, you know, nothing was familiar. Mm -hmm. So it's, it was like watching it for the first time and yeah, I can see why it's not the favorite. Absolutely. But, but I know it goes, it just follows along into the next movies and stuff. I yep. think, I guess. <laughs> it's it does what it needs to do it gets yes. the characters from years four to year six yeah. and and a lot of these movies from here on out have a very different feel to them and uh so it's it's got its own feel yeah uh 
but we'll talk about that a little bit more once we get into the episode proper. But uh, general feelings right off the bat. Uh, some interesting stuff. It's not as deep as uh, Goblet of Fire or Prisoner of Azkaban mm-hmm. or even Chamber of Secrets or, or Sorcerer's Stone. Um, it deals with some with some really heavy topics. It, it deals with some really neat themes. I feel like the approach is so dispersed, though, that some of those get lost in the weeds. Yeah. Um, and I really wish that those themes had had played out across the entire film. Uh, themes like uh, the ability to trust authority or not. Um, yeah. The abuse of power. The uh, growing up and understanding that the past isn't always as black and white as you remember it. Yeah. Um, things like that. It would have been nice to see those themes better defined, more clearly attached to the to the central plot. And some of those might have just been lost in the fact that this is a pretty massive book. Right. And it's also one of the shortest films. <laughs> and it... The... The division between the two, I feel like something was lost in translation. Yeah. So we'll get into that in just a moment as we dive headfirst into Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. Okay, now to talking about the Order of the Phoenix in whole so this is the first of four films that david yates uh, directs in the harry potter franchise he will direct this film through the end of the series uh and there's some good in that and there's some not as good in that okay. um the the good in that is consistently from here on out the films have a a solid feel to them uh they the actors' interactions feel pretty consistent from here until Deathly Hallows Part Two. Uh, uh, from a production design standpoint, most all of it flows pretty well. Um, some things change from movie to movie. Uh, there are different uh, composers on the next mm-hmm. few films. Uh, one of the things I noticed on this film is that the the compositions musically were entirely passable, but they were nowhere near as good as either Patrick Doyle's in the last film or any of the John Williams uh, film scores in the first three films. Um, I like how you notice stuff like that where I had, you know, I hear the music, but I don't notice how good it is. So when I experience a film, uh, especially one as grandiose as Harry Potter or something like Lord of the Rings or Star Wars or anything of that nature of an epic Mm -hmm. sweeping nature one of the first things i notice is music uh because music will like i said in the first couple harry potter movies it will take a movie that's okay and it will take it to a whole nother level uh the movie tron legacy it's a decent action movie but you add the effects and the score uh, by Daft Punk, and it elevates it to, I would say, Tron Legacy is a great sci-fi movie. Mm-hmm. Whereas without the effects or the soundtrack, it's just okay. Yeah. It's a Star Wars ripoff. I guess I guess for me, it's just it just kind of blends into it. It's just part of the movie, and I don't ever really think about it. I don't pay attention to it. And... So, 
So I'm sure the music, I know the music makes the movie in a way, but. In a great, in a great movie, the little parts will work together to the point where unless you are out to look for them, you're not going to notice how great the sound design is. You're not going to notice how great you're just in. You're thinking about the experience. You're not thinking about the making until afterwards when you're like, man, that was so good. I wonder about all the pieces that I went into. Yeah. Um, but in this one, it, the movie largely works. Uh, it. Let's just get into it on yeah. the plot. So the film starts, uh, whereas in the last film, Harry was already in the world of magic um, ready to go and we never really left that world in this world in this film we start back in the muggle world uh dudley going by his new so pseudonym big d um <laughs> just thugged out yeah. um he looks different well he's older he, yeah and he's I'm wearing basketball weird. shorts and i guess because we didn't see him in the last movie so we skipped a year seeing him yes but yeah basketball shorts he's older and thinner uh, kind of. He's he's still wearing a fat suit. Yeah. But it's not as, like, as chunky as the last one. Yes. Uh, but Dudley comes out with his bully friends, and they're bullying Harry on a playground. Why? Because there weren't other little kid, kids around to do it to. <laughs> but a storm starts rolling in, and Harry and Dudley uh, start running towards the house when they're attacked by Dementors. Harry fends them off using the Patronus spell. Um, and all of a sudden, uh, I forget her name, but Harry's old babysitter comes in and walks them home. She reveals to Harry that she knows he's a wizard. She's always known he was a wizard. And this is right off the bat, one of the big divergences that we've run into with the film franchise and the book franchise in the book franchise. This character was introduced back in book one and it was Harry's, uh, babysitter, who took care of him and was one of the few nice people in his life. Yeah. Um, but in this, we're just now introduced to this lady who comes out of nowhere and, yeah. and we're supposed to care what she thinks. Why? Right. Other than the fact that she's one of the few non-magical people who's nice to her. I mean, in this, if you watch her, she's more like a peeping Tom. A little bit, but it's, but she, you know, she cares. Yes. In filmmaking as with a great number of things, Context is everything. Right. Um, but we get into the wizarding world um, when Harry gets home to his aunt and uncle who are just moaning over poor Dudley. And uh, he gets a shrieker letter letter from the Ministry of Magic telling him he's been expelled from Hogwarts for using a Patronus spell outside of school underage. So Harry goes uh, to, uh, to his room. He's freaking out. And in comes Professor uh, Moody. Uh, I don't know that he's actually a professor because he never really taught in the last movie. That's right. spoilers for Goblet of Fire. Uh, <laughs> but he and a few other members of a band that we will shortly be introduced to called the Order of the Phoenix come bust Harry out and they fly over to a brownstone in the middle of London. We come to find out that the Order of the Phoenix is an army started by Dumbledore in the first uprising of Voldemort to combat him. Uh, members of the original order included Harry's parents, uh, the Weasleys, Sirius Black, uh, and a few other characters that we'll hear about shortly. Um, 
but they are regathering uh, to fight the newly risen Lord Voldemort. Uh, in the process, we find out that Snape was an was a member and is a member of the Order of the Phoenix, um, which makes them uncomfortable. But if you've got to have Snape on a side, you'd rather rather have him on your side than on the enemies. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we get some cute interactions, including uh, meeting Creature, uh, Sirius Black's uh, house elf, who's kind of a jerk. Um, and then it's off to the ministry. At the ministry, we find out that Cornelius Fudge, <laughs> bless you, is a... Uh, is pretty much just a jerk and uh he doesn't like anyone questioning his absolute authority he doesn't like people saying that Voldemort's back because it makes him look weak and dumb um just in general the little interactions we've had with Cornelius over the past two movies we already know he's kind of a weak simpering idiot uh and totally powerless as far as an actual person goes um but he likes to pretend he has power because he's a politician uh Something I read not too long ago was uh, a statement from someone that said, you can always tell a person actually has power because they don't have to say anything about it. Yeah. Um, the people who are always talking about their power and authority are the people who don't actually have it. Um, so just putting <laughs> that out there to you. Um, so in this, uh, in this film, Cornelius will be, in this scene, he's a direct antagonist. Through the rest of the film, he's going to be more of a felt presence, but he is the force, kind of a tertiary antagonist, whereas Voldemort and his forces will always be the primary antagonist. This is the guy who's just always going to be getting in your way. And so at the trial, we meet... Uh, Imelda Staunton's character, uh, I forget her name, uh, <laughs> she looks very much like she likes to dress like uh, Queen Elizabeth II. She likes and pink. She likes pink and she likes kittens. And, uh, yeah, I like all the plates on her wall. Yes, she also <laughs> likes commemorative, commemorative plates. And immediately, I think anyone who collects commemorative anything on their wall, you can't trust them. <laughs> I'm sitting right next to our collection of mugs on the wall. Um, <laughs> so uh, during the trial, Dumbledore comes in and speaks for Harry uh, through the testimony of both Dumbledore and Harry's old babysitter. He is given the benefit of the doubt and allowed to go back to Hogwarts. When Harry gets back to Hogwarts, uh, come to find out that just like now with uh, various news sources, uh, some of which are of more or less uh, repute than others, uh, misinformation is being spread about about Harry or Dumbledore or both being liars and uh, seditious. And uh, this goes right into Harry's own common room where he is uh, berated by some of his fellow classmates whose parents uh, like to uh, watch Fox News. I mean, the uh, <laughs> whatever the Wizarding World uh, equivalent of Fox News is. Anyhow, uh, as we get into uh, the film, Harry goes to school and immediately we discover things are off. Imelda Staunton's character from the ministry has come to oversee things at Hogwarts. And 
very quickly we find out that she is going to step in, butt in, and otherwise run the school as much as she can throughout the film, undermining Dumbledore at every chance she gets, uh, stepping on other professors, hurting students, just in general being a terrible, terrible person. And at this point, I like to talk about one of the themes in the film that I wish had been more played out through the whole film, uh, and that is corruption not and evil not always being obvious. Um, and whereas with Voldemort, it's very obvious that this guy's the bad guy. He looks like a snake. He casts killing curses. There is no question in your mind, this is the bad guy. However, with other characters like Cornelius Fudge and Imelda Staunton's character that I'm forgetting, and some of you Harry Potter fans are currently ripping out your hair, I'm sorry because I'm not a true Harry Potter fan. Um, you have these characters who, through their own inaction, inadequacy, desire for power, abuse power and other people in order to hold it. And that is no less evil or insidious as the person who openly casts killing curses and things like that. You're looking up... Dolores Umbridge. Dolores Umbridge. Um, that's right, because she takes umbrage with everything. <laughs> uh, that's outrage for those of you who uh, don't understand... Uh, more than one syllable words. Uh, <laughs> although I don't know that saying outrage makes it. They get angry. Okay. Uh, <laughs> anyhow, Professor Umbridge uh, is just as much a villain in this movie as uh, Voldemort. I would argue she is somehow worse because whereas Voldemort is very open in his plans, in his methods, in his evil, Umbridge is sinister and uh, in a way that is frightening because it is so much more realistic. And yeah. it is it is something that you may or may not realize is going on around you. It regularly happens in one area or another. Now, before you start thinking that I'm pitching conspiracy theories to you, I'm not saying that around every corner is someone plotting your downfall. What I am saying is there are people who, whether they knowingly do it or not, because they desire something, they will act in ways that are counter to what they are telling you are their, are their desires. And when they do this, they will hurt people and causes badly. And I say this as someone who I personally believe I've done this personally. I've out of fear or out of inadequacy, I have treated people badly. And to do this once is bad to continue to do it. And when confronted with it, to deny it without inspecting yourself and dealing with it, it causes more and more and more and more harm. Yeah. And so you watch this through this movie and it's, it's, displayed on a big level, I would have loved to have seen that, that theme stretch a, a little bit further, but at the end, it, it ceases to be that and it becomes much more black and white. Yeah. But anyhow, uh, I'm going to gloss over a great number of things in this movie because I'll just be honest with you guys. I'm very distracted today, uh, between the good things and the bad things in life, just a lot of distraction. So yeah. I was kind of half to three quarters paying attention, but I got the high points. So 
immediately, uh, Professor Umbridge is the new professor of Defense Against the Dark Arts, and everything is going to be theoretical science. Nothing is going to have any practical purpose in her class at all. Um, think about it as the part of math that you're never actually going to use in any practice, even if you're going into engineering or uh space travel or anything like that. We're talking about the part that is the numbers that don't exist, uh, imaginary numbers, things like that. We're, we're wanting to deal with you on a theoret theoretical level. And um, the problem is there's a very real threat around them and all the students feel this. And so they start their own uh, club yeah. effectively, uh, to defend against the dark arts. And they call it Dumbledore's army. We'll get back to that later. Yeah. In the meantime, this year, uh, Dumbledore has been giving Harry the cold shoulder. Why we'll find out a little later, but it's a bad move. Uh, <laughs> we go through the year. Harry is still super attracted to Cho Chang, uh, from the last movie, uh, where, uh, she was going out with Cedric Diggory who, uh, kind of got iced at the end of the film. Yeah. Um, so he's pining after her. In the meantime, she's kind of mourning uh, her uh, dead ex-boyfriend. It's it's a whole thing. And she joins Harry's club. Uh, so we go through the year. Harry is having visions where he's seeing this hallway at the Ministry of Magic. All sorts of things are going down. Eventually, uh, we actually get to go with Harry off campus uh, for Christmas, where he actually gets to hang out at the Black House uh, with the Order of the Phoenix. And he actually experiences some semblance of family around Christmas. And if you haven't picked up on the theme by now, that if Harry is going to experience any bit of happiness or joy, life is probably going to snatch it away from him just in the course of the movie. It's it's going to happen. Yeah. Um, if you feel that this is life, I'm sorry, uh, because it is. Uh, <laughs> life is suffering, and it is also joy. Uh, they're bound together in an infinite dance. If you're experiencing joy, just wait. Sadness is coming. If you are experiencing sadness, just wait. Joy is just around the corner. You are always just around the corner from a transition. And unfortunately for Harry, these movies always like to end on the downer side. Uh, so uh, going ahead, we get into the spring and everything falls apart. Uh, Professor Umbridge discovers the uh, Dumbledore army meeting in the room of requirement. Uh, Dumbledore is implicated and has to flee before he is arrested and taken to Azkaban because Dumbledore is uh, on the run. All of a sudden, everything's falling apart around the school and everything looks dark because it is. Mm -hmm. But... We'll find out the turning point when we come back. All right, we're back and things are dark. Things are very dark at Hogwarts. Uh, so much so that Harry and Hermione and Ron are all introduced to Hagrid's half-brother, uh, Groppy, I think was his name. He's just a large simpleton giant child. Yeah. Um, 
and uh, not all there mentally, um, but still huge and could easily murder someone. Um, So, of course, Hagrid did what any, you know, responsible adult would do. He put him on a rope out in the woods. uh, (laughs) Where, you know. He was like three times the size of Hagrid. Hagrid. Almost 20 feet tall. Yep. Uh, And so the kids are like, cool, Hagrid. We'll come out and, and throw food at him, I guess, uh, <laughs> occasionally. Make sure he has company. You know, change his diapy. Um, <laughs> and so they go back to school, and they go to take the uh, ordinary wizarding... Uh, what was the last word? I don't know. It, it's owl. owls. It's owls is the exam. It's uh, levels, I guess. Yes, um, yes. And so they're going to go, and these are your TCAP tests for wizards. Do they mean anything? No, but it's how we judge our entire education system. And again, another theme I would have liked to have seen throughout this film is the just commentary on education systems and over-reliance on testing instead of on actual learning and education. I digress. Uh, In the middle of the OWL's exam, Uh, The Weasley twins have had enough of Professor Umbridge and decide, you know what? Who needs a diploma? We are going to have fun and go out with a bang. And they do. They set off all kinds of fireworks. Throughout the film, Professor Umbridge has been hanging all sorts of notices, making a nice little uh, wall of notices. There's 50 notices on there about what? 100 plus. 100 plus that says we now do this, we don't allow that. (laughs) Yes, all the do's and do nots. You know the killjoy in your life? Maybe it's me uh, who just ruins everything. It's where it takes all the color and joy out of life and makes it just this one very ugly. <laughs> yeah, the Weasleys are No joy. The Weasleys are through with making Hogwarts great again. And uh, they have <laughs> decided that they are through with this terrible terrible leader who sits in a throne lording it over the students and faculty alike. And uh, they uh, show her up and uh, destroy all the notices on the wall. They destroy all the textbooks and tests that the kids were taking in the class. And everyone cheers, including some of the professors who are just absolutely done with Professor Umbridge. Harry and uh, Ron and Hermione go. They're going to try to... uh, they're going to go and try to save Sirius uh, because Harry has had a vision of Sirius being injured. This is after he earlier had an, had a vision of uh, Arthur Weasley being attacked, and it actually came true. So they are certain that Sirius is in danger. They're going to go try to save him, but they are grabbed by Professor Umbridge, who begins to interrogate the students. And Hermione goes, "We need to. We need to." Tell her, Harry, tell her uh, Dumbledore's secret weapon. And so they take uh, old Umby out to uh, where uh, Groppy should be uh, tied up. But his rope is broken, and they're like, ah, crap, we were going to have him eat her. And, uh, <laughs> but then the centaurs, who are really ticked off, come out of out of nowhere, uh, story-wise as well, and uh, yeah. start shooting at her. And she just declares war on the centaurs, which is a bad mistake. Um, and between them and Groppy, she just apparently survives at the end of this film. I could have sworn the first time I watched this, I was like, yeah, they totally rip her in half. Like, right? No, she survives. Um, she was at the end. I didn't remember that. She does survive. All right. Um, and, uh, the kids get away, but they can't use the flu network. And so, uh, we learned early on in the film 
that the carriages that the kids ride in on every year after their first year uh, aren't just self-driving carriages. They're actually pulled by invisible creatures called kestrels. Um, they're these demonic horse-looking things. And so uh, what do they do? They decide to ride them. Now, for Harry and... Uh, and I'm already blanking on her name. <laughs> yes, uh, the uh, manic pixie dream uh, girl, um, <laughs> as we will call her in this episode, because uh, IMDb is loading slow. Um, <laughs> they can see these animals because they've witnessed death, um, and yet no one else actually. I'm going slow. Yes, you are going I slow. No one else can see him because they haven't actually seen death. Only the people who've seen death can see the kestrels. And so, man, this movie has a giant cast list. And, of course, she's going to... Luna Lovegood. Yeah, there you go. Luna Lovegood and Harry are the only ones who can see these creatures because they've actually seen someone die. Um, but everyone else, it's these things are invisible. So, in the scene where everyone flies off to save Sirius... You think it was weird when they got on top of these things they couldn't see? That's what I was trying to find. I'm like, was there something in it that they were able to see them at this point? That's what I was trying to figure out. I'm, I'm not sure how that works. The film never explains it, and the book might. I haven't read it, so I don't know. <laughs> uh, but I think it would be weird getting onto something yeah. you couldn't see and riding it. I'd be like, okay, do I have a hold of it? Are you sure? Because yeah, we're going to be in the air. Am I the right way? Am I? Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah, I've... Riding the sky coasters at an amusement park, I'm like, all right, you're sure I'm strapped in, right? <laughs> right? You're sure. You're sure. <laughs> no, they fly They fly off. They go to the Ministry of Magic in London. They're going after the prophecy uh, that the Death Eaters are trying to get. When they get there, they see a figure coming down the hall right as they get the prophecy. And it is none other than Lucius Malfoy. Gasp. They have been set up. Uh, the vision that was sent to Harry was, according to Lucius, exactly what the Dark Lord wanted Harry to see. Mm. All so that they could get the prophecy. Come to find out, the only people who can re retrieve a prophecy are the people about whom it was made. Mm. Um, so we then get a fight between Dumbledore's army and the Death Eaters there in the ministry until a giant collapse is triggered and they all fall to the lower level of the Department of Mysteries. The Death Eaters have Dumbledore's army at their at their grasp. Harry hands over the prophecy only for Sirius to walk up and punch out Lucius. And Lucius drops the prophecy, smashing it into bits. We get a big fight between the Order of the Phoenix, Dumbledore's army, and the Death Eaters. Some really cool action stuff. At this point in the movie, it has gone from being a movie about the students and dealing with abuse of power and things like that to it's an action movie. And uh, we get a really great fight and everyone's caught up in the moment. So much so that when Harry disarms Lucius of a wand, uh, Sirius yells out, nice job, James, uh, <laughs> thinking that he's fighting beside Harry's deceased father. Um and then right after this, Sirius uh, is about to get the best of old Malfoy. And out of nowhere comes uh, Helena Bonham Carter as 
Again, too many names. Uh, Bellatrix, Bellatrix Lestrange, uh, and uh, Kill Sirius. And uh, man, uh, it's just Harry has the heart ripped out of him all over again. And he goes, and you can tell that he is about to murder Bellatrix. Mm-hmm. And at the last minute, he he knows what he's doing is wrong. And he turns, and Voldemort is there kind of trying to pull the strings, trying mm-hmm. to manipulate Harry into becoming just like him. Dumbledore pops out of uh, the flu network, and we get a big... Star Wars style duel between the two most powerful wizards. And it's epic. It's huge. It's phenomenal. We've never gotten to see Dumbledore at his full strength. We've never gotten to see Voldemort fight and actually try. When he was fighting Harry, he was fighting one handed. He was barely trying. Right. This, they literally destroy the inside of the Ministry of Magic. And then. Voldemort's last move after it's a stalemate between him and Dumbledore. If there are too many names, don't worry. It's it's a lot of names for me, too. Um, <laughs> his last move is to try to possess Harry. And... All right, and apparently our computer pooped the bed because we looked at it wrong, so (laughs) we are back. Uh, The last thing I said was that Voldemort attempted to possess Harry. Um, Dumbledore talks Harry through, hey, you're not him. You don't have to be like him. Fight it. And Harry remembers the things that are different about him and Voldemort. There are similarities, but the things that set them apart is Harry is not doing this alone. He is not by himself. He has friends. He has loved ones. He has adopted family that he has brought along on this journey with him. And they are not leaving him. They are not turning their back on him. They are with him to the end. And at this point, Voldemort pulls back from Harry telling him that he's going to lose everything. And right then people start showing up, including Cornelius Fudge (laughs) and everyone sees Voldemort. And there is no denying at this point that he's back. Voldemort disappears along with Bellatrix Lestrange and the rest of the Death Eaters. Dumbledore is vindicated. Hogwarts gets to go back to as normal as it ever was. And we get the falling action of, you know, at at least everyone knows now, uh, Cornelius Fudge has to resign uh, because he's disgraced. Mm -hmm. And everything's kind of left in limbo. Harry's lost the one loved one he had left that, (laughs) that was some sort of family and serious. It's... Again, we've suffered this major setback, and and Harry's, what now? I guess I'll go back to the Dursleys. (laughs) He didn't have anybody else that could take him on. Yes. So, why exactly did Dumbledore kind of give Harry the cold shoulder? So I never could figure that out. Dumbledore explains it in the movie. He was trying to distance himself from Harry so that 
Voldemort might not go after him. He was trying to he was trying to effectively play rodeo clown for Harry. Uh-huh. Uh, so you're familiar with the concept? Yes. Okay. So for those of you who are not familiar with the concept, in a rodeo, uh, whenever you have a bull rider uh, come out. Uh, the bulls are typically kind of agitated. The rider gets on the back, goes out, and the, the goal is to stay on the back of the bull for eight seconds. Well, the problem is uh, the bull is usually still angry after eight seconds. Right. And so in order to get people safely out of the ring, you bring in a specially trained performer, uh, typically in clown makeup, to distract the bull while the rider or other rodeo participant gets to safety. And rodeo clowns are professionally trained operatives who come in and their goal is to make sure people get into and out of the ring safely. So for Dumbledore, he knows that the person who's going to defeat Voldemort is going to be Harry. There's no question of that. That is the goal. The problem is Harry's not there yet. He is not ready yet. And so in order to get Harry to the point where he will be ready, Dumbledore needs to be a distraction. He needs to be the person taking all of the attention on himself. Um, so that's why he said when the kids were going, no, Dumbledore had nothing to do with this club. He yes. said, but my name's on it. So yes, it was my idea. And yes, he's the one that was taking that punishment in a way. Yes. And the idea is that Dumbledore is going to be the one that Voldemort will come after. Uh, it's the one person in the books specifically we hear is the person that Voldemort ever feared. Mm. And uh, one of my favorite moments in the fight between Dumbledore and Voldemort is Voldemort shows up and Dumbledore stares him down and goes, Oh, hi, Tom calling him by his human name and not his, his wizard's name. I'm trying to remember. Was it Tom Riddle? Tom Riddle. I'm trying to remember who Voldemort Yes. Okay. And it was this, it's this smart-ass call just of, I know who you really are underneath all of that. Yeah. You don't scare me. And it's this just verbal venom of, don't pretend you're <laughs> the best. You know who's the best. He's got a beard, and one of his middle names is Brian. <laughs> that was hilarious when he got up there at the beginning. And he had 17 <laughs> middle names. Yeah, and then, yeah. He, goes, then he goes, Brian. Dumbledore. Yes. <laughs> that just kind of cracked me out because it's like, it's unexpected. Well, that's this quirky character, but yeah. it was good. Again, this, this movie has some really great moments, but overall it just never gelled for me the way the others have. Yeah. And it, it's, it's still good. It's just not, it's not great. Yeah. Um, and, and again, this week has been full of distractions and a myriad of other things that have, have made it difficult to focus, but yeah. It it was good. It, it was a good distraction this afternoon. But I'm sorry if this wasn't the deep dive you were hoping for on this film. Uh, there are many, many other podcasters who are much better at this than I am. Uh, but we thank you for joining us anyway. I hope you'll join us again next week as we cover Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. Uh, followed in the following weeks with uh, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Parts 1 and 2. We still have two more Daniel Craig James Bond films this year, and we'll probably have some other one-offs here and there uh, on various subjects. So I hope you'll come back for more favorite things. Bye.